0: When I came to the Buddhist path, you know, the the idea that compassion is not pity really resonated mm-hmm. with me. And I, I still think of that as such a powerful tool because I, I think that that's still a misconception in not just mental mm-hmm. health, but I think even in the medical you know, just regular medical community and just people it means like poor you. But really, it's all of us.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg. I'm Lily Cushman, and I produce the Meta Hour, and we're continuing today with our very new mental health series. Today's the second episode in the series, which started just a few weeks ago with Reggie Hubbard, and the inspiration for this series grew out of may being mental health awareness month in the US and what feels like a overwhelming need across so many communities for support around mental health since the pandemic so we're embarking on this series to try to contribute towards destigmatizing mental health also just to offer some different education around it and to explore the ways that spiritual practice, meditation practice, or Buddhist philosophy can support mental health. So Sharon's sitting down with a whole variety of different folks, teachers, mental health advocates, educators. The result of that is a series that we're going to be running for the next few months We're delighted to have Kimberly Brown today as our second guest on the mental health series. If you don't know Kim, she's an author, a meditation teacher. She was the longtime ED of the Interdependence Project based in New York. And she has a new book out, Navigating Grief and Loss, in addition to her first release, Steady, Calm, and Brave, both of which are published by Prometheus Books. In the conversation, there is a lot discussed about the stigma of mental health and really how that has continued to change generationally. And Kim shares a lot about her childhood and what education around mental health looked like for her growing up and Sharon tells her story, and looking at the ways that these larger trends in stigma and education come down to impact individuals. There's also a fair amount of conversation about some of the harmful aspects of normative culture and what can happen when there's a really narrow lens or expectation for what it means to be a person and how often that can lead to these beliefs that there's something wrong with us. Also, in each of these episodes for the mental health series, there's discussion about different tools from meditative practice that can be directly applied towards mental health. And a lot of this episode discusses emotional intelligence and compassion. So there's a lot happening here. And Kim also speaks a bit about her new book, Navigating Grief and Loss, and some of the ways to work with grief. So it's a wonderful conversation. And before we get to the recording, a couple of announcements. We would love to hear from you regarding this mental health series. In particular, if you have any topic suggestions or just questions that you have, you can shoot us an email at admin at Sharon Salzberg.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at Sharon Salzberg.com. And lastly, we have a growing list of resources we're putting together as part of this series. And so I want to direct you to those. They're in the show notes for this episode. And they're just different links to different organizations that we like that support mental health. There's links to, let's say, find a therapist that's trained in mindfulness. And we're adding to that list as we go. We've also put up a few polls on social media and just sourcing from you all some of your favorite nuggets from therapy, some of your favorite books on the topic of mental health. So there's a lot of great information coming in. And in general, we're just excited to keep this conversation going. There's so many ways that we can all deepen our understanding about mental health and both increase our awareness for ourselves, but also how we approach our relationships and our communities. So enjoy today's episode, Kimberly Brown and Sharon Salzberg.
0: Hey, Kim, how are you? Hi, Sharon. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Where are you recording from? I'm here in New York City in Jackson Heights, Queens.
2: Oh, Great chai, I'm told.
0: Yes, yes, indeed, great chai. And we have the all the, the Tibetan community on one end, and there's um, a Thai Buddhist monastery on the other end. And at mm-hmm. eight thirty in the morning, the monks uh, do an alms walk. Oh wow! Which amazed me. I lived here a couple years before I saw it, and yeah, it's it's yeah.
2: Have you um, offered food?
0: i have not because i feel a little i'm not sure what to give them they always have an attendant with them and if i see Uh them i'll give the attendant some money for the monastery Uh
2: well it's very traditional you know if it's like say your birthday you know to off to make an offering rather than celebrating by receiving gifts you celebrate by giving gifts and so offering food in that way would be very auspicious very meritorious and it could, be a, it could be a banana, you know, or whatever. It's That's nice a beautiful idea. you really
0: like, you know. That's a beautiful idea. My birthday's in the autumn, Sharon, and I will uh, okay. do it. Let you know how it goes. Okay.
2: Good. Well, it's great to have you here today. Today's conversation is part of our ongoing mental health series on the Meta Hour. We're looking at ways that spiritual practice can support mental health and well-being. And in general, we're talking about this topic as a way to destigmatize it. So I'm curious to know a little bit about your history with mental health, both for yourself and your family. For me, growing up, this was not something that was openly talked about, and it was very challenged in my family. Any illness like cancer when I was young was only a word you would whisper about. Couldn't quite say it out loud, so... Do you remember when you were first exposed to any education about mental health?
0: You know, in my family growing up, Sharon, if you had—people were divided sort of into you're fine or you're crazy, and I'm putting that word in quotes— and people that were crazy, it meant someone that was having serious struggles, maybe mental illness, an obvious mental illness or trauma, you know, people that, um, behave very badly or violently or self harming or maybe incapacitated from depression, you know, that in my family and my community, well, that meant, okay, well, you definitely would want to get, Uh, psychiatry or therapy and that was okay and good thing. But for the rest of us, if it, if we seem like we are functioning, um, it, it didn't make sense. It was like, well, why would you go to therapy? You know, if you're, so you have a little depression, so you're anxious, so you're neurotic. Well, you know, that's who you are. There's no need to waste money talking about it, you know? And there was also a sense that, um, if you went and talked about your seemingly very normal life, um, you also would be blaming your family for your problems. So Mm -hmm. in that way, it was sort of frowned upon.
2: That's interesting. It'd be so uh, fascinating to think about what our societies might look like if there were just less stigma around unhappiness and mental suffering and all challenges to mental health. If those challenges were talked about as a kind of a natural part of the human experience, to one degree or another, and if we were offered certainly, if we were offered some basic tools to try to help us navigate it, and you know, if you were a child as I was, you know, that grew up around someone with mental illness or the addictions that can often accompany it—drinking and gambling and and whatnot. It's frightening not to understand, and it's easy to think of mental illness or or these challenges to mental health as some kind of defect that your people have, but others don't.
0: Yes, yes, and at least for me, Sharon, my mom was an alcoholic growing up, and at times I felt... I didn't understand, of course, as a child, nobody said she was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that till I was grown. And so at times I felt either it was my fault that she drank so much, or why couldn't she just stop? And mm-hmm. it, it took a long time for me to really, under, uh, uh, well through my adulthood, to, to kind of come to peace with that and understand it was, it was an, um, you know, she had all kinds of struggles, including mental illness.
2: Mm. Well, in the research for this series, I came across some kind of amazing statistics. In 2020, 21% of the U.S. adults, that's 52.9 million, experienced a mental health condition of some kind that's one in five people. And the most affected groupings were 18 to 25-year-olds and BIPOC people. So those numbers tell us a lot that this isn't a rare thing by any means. And yet we tend to feel so alone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking that the, um, it, it's just heartbreaking to me because I do hear a lot of young people and talk to a, young, a lot of young people um, the last couple of years. And so many just seem to be not just struggling, we're also, you know, many people are struggling, but there's also a sense of, um, like comparing and why can't I just like make myself be a certain way? Um, it's really, I sometimes wonder why or how our culture can learn cause and effect, you know, that circumstances affect us and we have reactions to them and we can work with those reactions, but instead mm-hmm. it gets sort of like, well, if I have this kind of reaction, there must be something, you know, I'm doing something wrong and I'm, and then off you go into a real spiral. Um, it's, and it seems like I, along with those statistics, people feel very lonely and don't have anyone to talk to. It's, it's mm-hmm. very heartbreaking.
2: You've encountered uh, these young people in the course of, of teaching meditation.
0: Yes. Mainly Sharon, um, from the people will come to classes and things. And you know, I half-jokingly say nobody goes to college and has fun anymore. It used to be like, a carefree <laughs> no. time, right? But uh-huh. now it just seems like a lot of stress, and everybody feels like maybe they're not doing well enough and they should be better. It's um, I'm not sure what we're doing to young people, but it's, it's not so good.
2: Well, you've shared before about this idea you used to have about yourself that something was wrong with you. Were you a young person at that point?
0: Yeah, Sharon, I really grew up with that feeling. Um, and it was very old. It, it was, I felt it all throughout childhood. It was related to what you said about when you grow up in a certain environment, you might think, well, everybody else seems okay, you know? Um, and so, you know, being raised in a chaotic home, I was also an adopted child, I just felt like, well, there must be something wrong with me to mm-hmm. have these experiences, to not really know how to manage them. And and now I hear other people say it, and I really recognize that just from a wisdom view or even a scientific view, there is there can be nothing wrong with me or you or mm-hmm. anyone. We're just humans having our experiences and... Um and 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 yet it seems like in our culture the idea of normal is so narrow, yeah. That right, and so of course it makes sense that we not, you know many of us don't feel like we're we're okay or that there's something wrong. And a few years ago, I have a friend named Evan who I know from the Buddhist community, and Evan said to me, "This year is my year of being human." Mm. all of this year, and I am just going to recognize and allow everything. Do you want to join me? And I said, yes. And we jokingly, every year, said this year is going to be the year of being human, too.
2: Mm. Well, it's so interesting because one of the harmful results of the way we hold normative culture, you know, often is that there's a conclusion. We then draw that there's something wrong with me because I'm not, My family doesn't look like that or I don't feel that way, you know, the way apparently I'm supposed to feel or, or whatever it is. And and yet normative culture, first of all, it's just a construct. And second of all, it's always changing. You know, Mm -hmm. like I had, uh, I was on someone else's podcast yesterday being interviewed and, um, you know, they were asking me about my childhood and, you know, I started out, my parents got divorced when I was four years old and, being as old as I am, that was quite some time ago. And so the the host, like, sort of, went on to this thing about how disgraceful divorce used to be, you know, which is true. And mm. and it was so, uh, you know, it was somebody tell me about. Uh, I'm trying to think of the generations. It would be sort of like my uh, great grandmother. Uh, left her husband, and that was a newspaper headline, woman leaves her husband, you know, that, that age. It wasn't my great-grandmother, but it was like that, you know, someone uh, of that age, you know, and then even by the time my parents got divorced, it was, it was nothing common in a way or not spoken about at any rate. It might have been more common than we knew, uh, but you just didn't talk about that kind of thing. And, and yet, look at how things change.
0: yeah it's some it's amazing actually, because it's changed it seems pretty quickly in the, maybe the last twenty years really um I guess it's been building toward it, but um it does seem there's far less stigma and far more um you know people are just willing to say i'm th- I'm having this struggle or mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm seeing a therapist you know that i I don't think at least here in New York City there's any stigma around talking about that and have, you know, your conversation with your therapist or um, any sort of mental health counseling you're getting. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet I feel like that's true in a certain way, but it's still people, it's still rare for people to really be feel comfortable talking about their struggles Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. their suffering, you know? Um, And so I guess, it's true we're we're more tolerant or less judgmental, but I think it's still hard for all of us to share and to listen and hear other people when they're going through hard things. Yeah. Well, I
2: bet it's very varied. It's varied geographically, it's varied in terms of um, religious fundamentalism. It's uh, varied in many ways because uh, we are quite different you know,
0: yeah.
2: in those yeah, regards. Every cultures. once in a while, and it is often cultural, I like come upon somebody who I might say, you know, kind of casually, well, do you have a therapist? And what I really mean by that is do you have an ally in this journey? You know, like are you mm-hmm. trying to do this alone or are you, do you have someone with you in this struggle, you know, and who's on your side? And, and sometimes they look at me with horror like, did you just like, Consign me to the loony bin or something like that. You know? <laughs> like, what do you think my issue is? You know, like it's, it's also very odd. So I'm very grateful for people like uh, Senator John Fetterman. You know, who just comes right out and he's not like, you know, walking the Appalachian Trail or he's not on a uh, extended rest. He's right. getting psychiatric treatment inpatient for depression. It's like whoa.
0: Yeah, that was really. um, I mean, sadly, it was it's still courageous because he's a public figure, you know. Um, And I think that did wonders for many, many people who struggle with depression, you know. Um, And as and when I was thinking about just how the journeys changed, and yet still we struggle to talk about our suffering, I was Mm -hmm. also thinking that. In healing mental illness, it requires more than just sending people off to get treatment. Like Mm -hmm. it requires all of us, you know, to develop more compassion in ourselves, for ourselves, and openness. And Senator Fetterman, and I was thinking of Naomi Osaka, the tennis Mm -hmm. player, she dropped out of one of the, I think, the French Open um, because of her mental health. And I thought, well, they're helping to create that openness and it just i think it requires all of us not just mm-hmm. the you know medical community or the mental health communities
2: so you are a meditation teacher you're also a therapist right
0: I am an unlicensed therapist Sharon. I did train to be a psychoanalyst, but I don't clinically practice. But I did have an interest in it and it was why I um
1: uh-huh.
0: you know, I ex- actually through it, I I wound up as a Buddhist, you know. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was thinking about um I I had lots of therapy, and it was so helpful to me. And yet, I started having panic attacks. And I could tell you, Sharon, oh, okay, well, I know why I'm having this panic attack. You know, there are these conditions in my life that are really triggering some childhood stuff. Mm -hmm. And yet, I did not have the tools um, from psychotherapy. I didn't have any... um, No one at that time taught meditation or mindfulness in in therapy, and I didn't know what to do. And that's how I wound up um, starting to study with Buddhists and uh, meditation teachers, because it really helped me get my mind, you know, um, steady and more stable. And... And it answered certain questions. One of the reasons I left um, psychotherapy is because uh, training is because I didn't like diagnosing people. Uh And I just felt like, well, we all have struggles, you know, and I understand why, you know, it's necessary to understand someone's troubles in order to treat them. But I also think that it may be more humane just to understand that we all, have struggles and suffering, and when I came to the Buddhist path, you know the the idea that compassion is not pity really resonated with me, and i I still think of that as such a powerful tool because i I think that that's still a misconception in not just mental mm-hmm. health but I think even in the med- you know just regular medical community and just people it means like poor you, but really it's all of us and Anyway, that that informed, in part, my, um, you know, my decisions to not pursue that path. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, it seems that one way we normalize our experience, of course, is through some kind of community. Is just as you say, we can communicate about our experience, and even if someone doesn't match it, they can have a, a kind of empathy for us, or or some resonance with some part, at least, of what we're we're saying, and uh, it's usually normalizing it. You know, we're left with um, a sense of vulnerability perhaps, but not a sense of being excluded from life, you know, that we are still a part of things and we have, um, you know, that terrible habit of isolating ourselves. Like, I'm the only one who's ever experienced such a thing. I better hide it. and. Uh, And yet, when we are really a little more honest with one another uh, and with ourselves, you know, we see often tremendous commonality, not in the specifics, but uh, in the feelings more. Like, you know, I don't know exactly what you're feeling, but I can remember a time in my own life, for example, when people weren't really telling me the truth. And so that, that squeamish feeling inside of, you know, Uh, being overlooked or unseen or whatever. It's like, I can relate to that. I can resonate with that. And that feels terrible. And, um, you know, that's, that's an essential feature of, I think, being a human being actually and being more fully alive. And, and we get there in some ways by being able to connect to our own suffering because otherwise we couldn't resonate with the suffering of others. You know, we would just be kind of blank you know, or blocked, and uh, that seems an important step to have some sense of, if not personal community, you know, I don't mean you have to join a social club or something, you know, but uh, some inner feeling of being connected to others uh, seems really important. And maybe that, in a way, is part of the role of the therapist who's standing in for everybody at that moment.
0: Yes, that's true, Sharon, and I was thinking of, Early on when I was um, finding different sanghas and communities in New York City, Mm -hmm. I was at a Dharma talk in the city. And during the question and answers, a a young man, he started to, he was angry and he started to say, I'm really angry. And then he started to cry and he said, I'm in the midst of a divorce. Mm -hmm. And Sharon, everybody in the room, there was probably 40 people and the teacher. No one like sprang to action, you know, oh, you should do this, you should do that. Everyone really just held this beautiful space for him. It was very loving. And I realized I had never had that experience in a group of people. I had, as you say, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of my therapist had stood in for that and uh, and good friends, you know, Um, and and it really was a powerful lesson as to how community can um, help us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, some people have pastors and teachers and churches. And like you said, who's your ally in this journey? You know, Um, I was thinking, too, in. Zimbabwe, they have this project called the Friendship Bench." It was started by a psychiatrist there, and they don't have, like here, they have a shortage of therapists, and he decided that he was going to train some elderly women, called them the grandmothers and just you know, train them to listen. And they set up these benches. they have them, they're called Friendship Benches, and you could go and sit, and a, a woman will sit with you and listen. And then through that, if you want, you can join a peer community and they start to develop. Um, I think they learn like CBT tools, you know, things where they can support themselves. And then um, in that community, there's um, a lot of economic hardship. So with mm-hmm. that same peer group, they'll invite people if they want. They're, they're starting to make things that they can sell in the community. And it started very small and the um, founder made sure they did a lot of uh, like control trials and have a lot of evidence that it's uh, successful. And now they're replicating it there and there's talk of replicating it. You know what? You could do it anywhere. And it really seems very beautiful because to me, at least it takes away that, that idea that you're apart from the community, mm-hmm. you know, and that you're, you know, or that, that you're a part or that people who have um, mental illness are a part, and rather we're all together.
2: Well, that's that's really lovely. I mean, I, I really uh, I celebrate people who are working in many modalities for their own healing. Because why not? You know, and of course, the why nots get compiled. You know, because people um, have very you know certain kinds of views. Like I've got to spiritualize my way out of this, or you know, I yeah. can't possibly do medication or, or whatever. And, and that's not to say I don't ignore the fact that medication can be way overused or overprescribed, you know, um, for all kinds of reasons. But nonetheless, this sort of wholesale condemnation of a potential relief of one's suffering, which will also relieve the suffering probably of many, uh, it doesn't make that much sense, you know, in, in so many ways and to me. Um, and people often then say, you know, like, well, were you not finding something in your meditation practice that led you to seek a therapist or something like that? And I don't see it quite that way either. I mean, for one thing, meditation practice, um, which I did first before I did any kind of therapy of any kind, um, is very global. You know, you can't say if you have a specific acute problem which is really hindering your life in some way that it's going to be worked out by Tuesday through your meditation. (laughs) You know, you just can't. You're learning skills the whole time. Uh, You're learning tools the whole time. Um, And it's great. I think we're changing the whole time, even if we don't always recognize it. But if you have, you know, a burning splinter in your in the palm of your hand, I like seek someone to take it out, you know, not that the therapist is going to remove the suffering, but it's just a more um, specific kind of looking at a particular source of pain.
0: Yeah, that's beautifully said Sharon. And, and, and it does seem like there's an idea of like, it has to be either or, Mm -hmm. but um, in my experience, you know, different modalities really complement each other and certainly therapy and meditation and, and mm-hmm. Buddhism really complement each other, I think.
2: So having you know, talked a little bit about therapy and meditation, let's look at some of those tools we can apply from meditation toward our own mental health. And the top of that list for me is the development of emotional intelligence. It's really a firsthand experience looking deeply at our different states to understand that, say, a state like depression uh, or the kind of anxiety we can feel is something that's actually made up of many different feelings. If you look at depression, maybe helplessness, sadness, numbness, uh, exhaustion, so many things. And we actually see if we can move to kind of sometimes we call it the place in the middle, not being so identified with it, like this is who I am, this is who I'll always be on the one side and also not like rejecting it or just being afraid of what we're feeling or deciding we're a terrible person because this is what we feel after so many years of meditating or or whatever it might be and, and rather see if we can find that place, looking directly at what's happening, connecting it with what's happening in the moment and yet not either being completely engulfed by it or pushing it away. And that's what we call mindfulness. And certainly some things are easier than others to be mindful of, but that's not to say that some of the same uh, remedy, so to speak, some of the same environment we learn to build around things that are less difficult, we actually discover, oh, you know what? It makes a difference here too. You know, not adding isolation to what we're feeling for one thing, not adding a seemingly endless future like this is how it's going to be in a year and two years and three years. Oh, no, it's going to be this way forever. Uh, So many things that just the force of habit we might add on that make the suffering so much worse. What is your favorite tool to contemplate in this context?
0: Well, I guess, you know, I was thinking, Sharon, that, Saying two things when you're talking that um one of the things in meditation that is for me a continuous learning is this being able to hold all of what you were talking about, all helplessness, sadness, numbness, you know, everything that makes up what we put a sticker on and call depression or anxiety. And that this development of having this capacity to have this container um, is profoundly transformational, at least it has been for me. I was thinking of when you say, um, if you throw a bucket of paint in the air, it can't stain Uh the sky. And that is amazing because it's, that's what I have experienced. It's a metaphor for my own experience in practice that, yes, all of these very hard things arise. Yeah. And... There is an ability or a a quality that I have and you have and we all share of being able to be present and be with and hold or, you know, there's a million words for it. Um, And I didn't know that even existed. I was really just so caught and driven by very painful thoughts and beliefs and believing they were true or trying to figure out if they were false, you know. And now it's, well, yeah, they can arise. That's okay. They're not staining the
2: sky. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and you know very well that that image is used to speak about love.
0: Mm.
2: Uh, The quotation from the Buddha being uh, Develop a mind so filled with love, it resembles space, which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. Develop a mind so filled with love, that free, that open, that unconfined, so vast that it's not going to be ruined even if the paint color was like a really bad choice to help mine. So filled with love. So maybe uh, that's a preeminent tool in terms of uh, love and care for oneself and kind of self-compassion as well.
0: Yes, I think so, Sharon. And I was thinking like, (sighs) often people will say, I have to love myself or I have to love that person or I have to learn to, to sort of direct love in a certain way. And this quality, this, you know, I'm saying it's like this space, but from my experience, it's, it's what I consider love and openness and allowing, uh, being with struggle and suffering, and uh, um, recognizing that I can't control everything and I don't have to fix or figure out everything all the time. And that, that being able to have that sort of lovingness, um, it's not about the object. Like it's not loving me or loving you or loving Putin. It's, love and to to develop that quality of openness like that it's directionless is I guess the only thing I could think of and then as, as I'm speaking Sharon I'm thinking about metta meditation and how you've okay. taught it to me and so many of us and that it's boundless you know it's directionless and it really feels that way
2: Indeed, you know, I used to. I, I still like the image, actually. Um, well, first, it was it was born out of this uh, movie that my goddaughter was in quite a long time ago. The movie is called Dan in Real Life, and uh, Peter Hedges, who wrote the script and directed the film, had a line in there which I thought was just wonderful. He said something like, "Love is not a feeling; it's an ability." And while, well, of course, we, we think of love as a feeling, and it's a feeling we might seek, and and so on. Uh, think about love as an ability, rather than as a feeling. There's something in me that says, when I see it as a feeling, I also kind of see it as a commodity. And it's very much in the hands of someone else. And I would get this image of like the UPS person or someone like that standing at my doorstep with this package and looking down at the address and, and thinking, nah, wrong place, and kind of start to walk away. That's my package of love, and it's all in their hands. <laughs> it's not up to me. And I'm going, wait, wait, I need that. you know. Like, But if it's an ability, it's within me. And in some ways, it's my responsibility to cultivate it or strengthen it or nurture it, if that's what I want. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's beautiful. It's very empowering to live life like that. You know. Um I, both therapy and, you know, the Buddhist path and meditation have really mm-hmm. before that I just felt like a leaf in the wind. Like, you know, if something I wanted happened, okay, then I could be happy. And if something didn't and I got rejected or I didn't get the job or mm-hmm. they were out of the shoes, then I was sad. And mm-hmm. it's such a impossible way to live. It's sad you know Mm -hmm. um and it feels so different now i certainly have lots of struggles i'm sure i'll have many more and yet to be able to uh know that it's within me because i have these qualities and i can develop them uh, it's very freeing
2: so i want to uh talk about your new books (laughs) plural Navigating Grief and Loss and Steady, Calm and Brave. And a big congratulations to you. Both books feel very applicable right now and applicable to this discussion about healing and creating a different environment within and uh, greeting the struggles in a different way. So tell us what inspired them.
0: Well, you know, the grief book was inspired because uh Several people close to me in the last few years had died, had gotten sick, Mm -hmm. had illnesses before and then died. And the practices that I learned in my life, both as a Buddhist student and just from my other training, really, I credit them for helping me to show up for these really hard situations. Mm -hmm. To be able to, you know, sometimes just be present was it's hard when someone's very sick. It's hard when someone's died, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And I really felt that these practices really helped me. I certainly did not go through it, you know, as a a peaceful being of love and light, which is how I think I should be sometimes. I went Mm -hmm. through it as a very human person and had many ups and downs and confusions and anger. And these practices really brought me back to myself. So that's why I wrote the book, I was I hope that it helps other people feel uh it's okay to have many different feelings and to get confused during these hard times and that there are practices that can support you. Um and the steady calm and brave I originally wrote that in the pandemic for the pandemic it was very particular about that crisis and then um it's been revised to include all kinds of crises that people might find themselves in, you know, someone's health is uh, struggling and they have an illness or maybe they're dealing with unemployment or divorce. And similarly, the practices are uh, how to meet them with kindness and with wisdom. And both of the books emphasize Uh, the development of compassion and love and use uh, loving-kindness meditation as well as mindfulness, but with a real uh, emphasis on loving-kindness meditation. Mm -hmm. Well,
2: I like so much how much the books are rooted in practice with different meditations for each chapter.
0: You know my the woman that I worked with uh she's a friend she also is a write, a developmental uh, writing coach, mm-hmm. and she said, "Kim, you know this book is something I think you should have it so people can just pick it up and they don't have to read the whole thing. They can just go through the contents and say, "Oh." fighting with a family member and open that up and reread it and do the Mm -hmm. practice. And I've heard from people that it's been very useful in that way. So I'm glad. Well,
2: in so many ways, you know, uh, I would see grief as having a similar kind of cultural conditioning as mental health where it's not included in the dialogue often where the connotations are negative if it is. And yet it's such a, a common part of life. It's life itself is the arising and passing away of everything and everybody. And, you know, relationship ends or we get fired from a job or we mourn the loss of a loved one, which has been so prevalent in these last years, or just situations change, expectations shatter. We're not where we thought we were going to be, you know. On a foundational level, we often don't know how to let go. And we see this time and again in families or uh, really what they need to do to be able to do is simply grieve and hopefully grieve together. But instead, um, something someone said to me once in a circumstance where someone we knew had died and uh, people who had previously all been close to him in different ways kind of turned on one another. You know, it's like you hear these stories mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and it actually happened, you know, and um, somebody said to me at the time, don't you understand, we don't know how to grieve. And so, you know, it's coming out of this form, it's coming out of that form. Um, but how do you teach about grief to someone who's opening up to it for the first time?
0: You know, Sharon, I have been so honored since the book came out last autumn to talk to people both uh, formally, you know, people who've who've come to meditations and informally, Mm -hmm. you know, in social situations. When people find out I've written a book on grief, people will tell me their stories. And it seems like people who are experiencing for the first time some of them feel like there's no space except grief, like that's all they're in. And some of them feel or say, um, Yes, it, it was very hard and I'm fine now. Uh-huh. And when I started teaching kind of classes about grief, I had ideas about what I might teach them, you know, Buddhist things and psychological things. But what so far my experiences, really giving people space to experience their experience, mm-hmm. to experience their experience and then to share it. And so in, in the grief classes that I've taught in these six months, been, there's always been a few people that will sign up and then say, you know, I didn't know there's meditation in here. You know, I don't know if I mm-hmm. want to do this. And what they, so far at least, what people report is just being able to be quiet and be with their self, you know, be with what's arising in them is very powerful in being able to just to hold the grief and then to be able to share it with others Mm -hmm. who are going through it. You know, this seems, it's surprisingly simple and surprisingly effective. It's been very gratifying to hear people's, Mm -hmm. you know, they're not, it's not like they suddenly have no more pain. But it's more that they feel like, oh, this is this is what grief is, and it's okay.
2: Well, let's talk about uh, courage in two ways. One is the other title, "Steady, Calm, and Brave." I'd like to understand the origins of that title, which is so fantastic. And also, when you talk about grief and being able to sit with it and be with it, that is hard and scary for a lot of people. And I suspect it's one of those things where. Our anticipation of it is harder than the actual experience of it. Nonetheless, it's quite painful. And um, the most, maybe we'd say in a a meditative context is, well, let's not add extra pain. You know, like it's painful enough and it is painful to experience a kind of loss. and, And I don't think that's something we have to apologize for. Like if only I was better, you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have this. I think we do have it. It's being a human being, but we don't kind of need the extra pain of the things we blame ourselves for needlessly, unjustly and getting caught in the endless accumulation culture, which is all around us. Like if I only get enough ABC or XYZ, then I will be safe, Uh, safe from change, safe from death, which we never are. Um, the understanding of impermanence and just the natural flow of life, but what does that have to do with courage?
0: Well, you know it's it's very hard to show up for your struggles and your suffering, and in in I think that's like that's really the bravest thing you can do mm-hmm. is to be able to do that. And I know Sharon, you often quote, I don't know what sutta it's from, about the Buddha having a great brave heart of courage Mm -hmm. through his compassion. Mm -hmm. And it's true, it's born out in my life. And to be able to just have this capacity to hold struggle, hold grief, hold painful things and loss, um, in some ways, it's I hate to use the word joyful because someone out there is going to be mad that I used it, but it is a certain amount of joy to be able to hold everything that I experience in my human life. This this is my human life. I don't know if I have another one. So I would like to be able to meet it, its sorrows and its painfulness and its terrible losses as well as all of the happiness and delight. And um, it I think it takes some bravery through compassion and kindness to do that.
2: Mm-hmm. And that would include kindness toward oneself, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yep, and patience.
2: So many cultures outside of ours in the U.S. Uh, use ritual as a way to work with loss, and that can help us to focus and support the process and many rituals around the world are joyous celebrations. So can you offer some practical suggestions for people to use rituals in order to navigate yes long?
0: Sharon, it's amazing that we scoff at ritual. Um, I guess, you know, when I, I, you know, I said, it's amazing. We scoff at ritual, but I scoffed at ritual for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, when I started practicing with different Buddhist groups, especially the Tibetan groups, they have lots of ritual. It seems so mystical. And mm-hmm. you could see it in that way, but you can also see it is that everything is designed to help you wake up. Like every single ritual, you know, holding on to a mala, prayer beads, or, you know, uh, saying a chant. it's all designed to help you be here you know and be with what's arising mhm and so rituals like my favorite one for someone who's died is just to have a little shrine and it doesn't have mm-hmm. to be complicated it, i have one on my bookshelf for my my dear friend denise and i put it up soon after she died it has pictures and notes she left me and i like candles and i still do that and You know, I know a skeptic might say, well, she's gone or what God is that going to? But Mm -hmm. it's not about that. It's going, it's me honoring my friend. In a certain way, it's for me uh, to recognize and appreciate the life that we had together. And so I always encourage people to do that, to take some time and, you know, maybe every day just um, lighting a candle or saying hello um, can be a really easy ritual to um, to honor your loss and also I've found in the Buddhist tradition there are a number of really you know beautiful prayers that you can say for someone and again it I don't think you have to think it's to God or something it's more you know may you be safe may your you have every blessing uh, that's what I hope through my deeds to be able to offer you.
2: Well, going back to where we started, actually, it's also common in a country, say like Burma, where I did some amount of practice in the 80s and where um, you didn't pay even room and board because everything you needed was offered by the people. And it could be an individual, it could be a family, it could be a village coming together to come feed the meditators, you know, and they wouldn't in general make the food, but they would provide the money that the monastery would buy the food for and for us and, and everybody there. And it could be a lot of people there. Um, And so you might do that on the occasion of your birthday. You might do that because your daughter's graduating from high school and you might do that when someone has died uh, because of there are certain beliefs within the culture about rebirth, but even not, believing those is a way of honoring that that person who's died and and uh so basically if you could you would come to the monastery and you would watch the meditators eat the food that you had provided through your generosity and they'd be so happy these people that you were going to meditate and uh become freer based on the strength you had that they were able to provide and it was such an occasion of joy. And, um, there was one time when, uh, meals in Burma in this place were very formal. Like there's like a processional and then you, you come into the dining room and everyone's seated in like threes and fours on the floor around these tables. The food's sort of family style. You come in and you bow to the Buddha image. Uh, and you sit down and, uh, I did that one morning and lunch is like, 10 or 10.30 in the morning, and there's not another meal for the rest of the day, which is another whole topic of discussion. But came in, I bowed to the Buddha, sat down, looked at the table, and I thought, this is really odd. This looks like a whole Jewish meal. It's like whitefish salad. It's like chicken soup. And I must be hallucinating what's going on in my meditation. But it turned out that there was a tiny, minuscule Jewish population in Rangoon, and somebody had died. And so the family came to offer not only the money for the food, but the recipes, uh, in honor oh. of their, their father or grandfather. And so it was an entire Jewish meal, uh, which was so strange, but it, and that's a beautiful ritual to, to feed somebody on behalf of your person. Oh, you
1: know, that really is amazing. Here. Yeah.
0: So
2: that's another possibility. If you are in Jackson Heights and you see those monks going on alms rounds, you know.
0: That's a great idea, Sharon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. From birthday and to honor my deceased people, that's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: That's great. So before we close today, I would love for you to lead us in a practice of some kind to finish our time together.
0: Well, thanks, Sharon. Everyone who's listening, you know, if you could just for five minutes, put your device down, maybe put it next to you. I know some of you are driving and you can't do this, but for the rest of you, maybe close your eyes or maybe just get still and just start to notice that you're here. Notice your breath. Feeling your feet and your seat and your belly. Relaxing your shoulder blades and relaxing the back of your head. Relaxing your shoulder blades. Maybe just noticing that you're breathing. And I'd like you to um, think of someone who might be struggling right now. Might be someone in your family or a close friend or a colleague. And if you don't know anyone struggling right now, you maybe know someone in the news or certainly there are groups all over the world. You can think of someone in that group. And I'd like you to offer them this phrase, may you be gentle with yourself, may you be peaceful and at ease. May you be gentle with yourself. May you be peaceful and at ease. May you be gentle with yourself. May you be peaceful and at ease. And just for the next minute, silently repeating that phrase like you're giving a gift to this other person. May you be gentle with yourself. May you be peaceful and at ease. And now connecting with yourself. Maybe put your hand on your heart. Maybe imagine you're looking in the mirror. And say to yourself, may I be gentle with myself. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be gentle with myself. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be gentle with myself. May I be peaceful and at ease. And just offering this beautiful wish like you're giving a gift to yourself. Just for a minute, repeating these phrases. May I be gentle with myself, may I be peaceful and at ease, and just taking a moment now to include everybody, include the people you care about, include strangers all over the world, the people we'll never meet, include everybody you don't like or you think is dangerous, all the other non-human beings. May we be gentle with ourselves, may we be peaceful and at ease. And thanking yourself for taking this moment. Thanking yourself for your good sense and your beautiful heart. You can conclude this meditation and open your eyes. And you can always practice this any other time too. Just taking a moment for yourself.
2: Thank you for that lovely meditation. Thank you for being here today and it's it's wonderful to connect
0: thanks so much Sharon what a pleasure
1: hey folks thanks so much for listening if you'd like to learn more about Kim's work, her many offerings or to get a copy of her wonderful new book you can visit meditationwithheart.com Don't forget to check out our resource list for the mental health series in today's show notes. And if you'd like to learn more about Sharon's virtual offerings or online courses, really all things Sharon, you can visit SharonSalsberg.com. This has been the Menta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy and may you live with ease.